From the beautiful campus of California State University, San Bernardino, and the College of Arts and Letters, thank you for tuning in to the CSUSB Cal Podcasts. These podcasts focus on all things in the College of Arts and Letters. From our innovative, creative faculty in their teachings and outside projects, to staff insights, and our students carving their way in these COVID times. Welcome to another episode in the College of Arts and Letters podcast series. I'm Kelly Cluquet, Operations Manager for Coyote Radio and Advertising. And with me today, our interview subject is Assistant Professor in the Department of Philosophy. It's Caitlin Krizzi. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. We'd like to start by um, having you describe where you grew up, your hometown, what that environment was like. Sure. So I grew up on the East Coast. Uh, My hometown was Hazlitt, New Jersey. It's a working class suburb. I'm New Jersey about an hour by train from New York and 15 minutes by car from the northernmost New Jersey beach, which is Sandy Hook. You can actually see New York City from the beach at Sandy Hook. So there's not much to say about Hazlitt. It's kind of a strip mall of a town. There's nothing super noteworthy. It's cut through by two highways. Most people live there because it's a quick commute to New York City, and it's more affordable than some of the surrounding areas. So that's why my family ended up there. My dad's a construction worker, and my mom's a bookkeeper. She commuted into the city every day and still commutes into the city every day, I think, probably for uh, one more year yet. Um, Yeah, so I grew up in Hazlitt. It was fine growing up there. Um, there was, you know, typical suburban kind of life. Um, a lot of hanging out in parking lots of convenience stores or restaurants and doing things that your parents wouldn't approve of, like smoking cloak cigarettes or, <laughs> um, you know, driving to more exciting towns nearby. Uh, luckily, we were by the beach, so we could drive to the beach year round and hang out there, but pretty much the best thing to do in Hazlitt was to uh, leave (laughs) the town via one of the highways that ran through. Um, But, you know, growing up in Hazlitt, maybe more specifically, uh, growing up in New Jersey did have its impacts on me. So being so close to New York City was inspiring because I knew There was a whole big world out there. There was this really incredible and exciting place that I could go visit and get to know quite well. And I ended up actually going to school as an undergraduate in New York City. Growing up in New Jersey also gave me a real sense of, I mean, directness. (laughs) I I communicate much more directly than people I meet who aren't from New Jersey. I I have a kind of frankness of communication that is definitely in part a function of the environment in which I grew up. Yeah, so that's that's where I that's where I grew up. That was my hometown. Again, you know, it was it was um it was a it was a decent place to grow up. It was close enough to a bunch of really cool places, and definitely living there informed even if mainly negatively, certain uh, life choices I made later on. So for example, New Jersey is incredibly uh, dense. It's the highest population density in the country. And some of the decisions I made later were about getting away from uh, the crowds and crowded places. Um, So yeah, that's where I grew up. 
I don't hear any part of a New Jersey accent. How is that possible? Uh, I can turn it on. Um, <laughs> I can definitely turn it on. My partner, um, when I was first um, dating my partner, he said that he couldn't hear the New Jersey accent except when I said coffee and half and half. So I want half and half in my coffee. And he's like, okay, you're from New Jersey. I can tell now. <laughs> what is your academic background, your schools, colleges, and then what led you to CSUSB? Yeah, uh, I went to public school in Hazlitt, New Jersey, where I grew up. I went to New York University for my undergraduate education. I majored in philosophy there. I thought at first that I would like to major in psychology, but I thought the psychology classes were <laughs> easier and not as exciting for me um, at that stage in my life. Of course, now I'm thinking, oh, I should have just double majored. <laughs> there would have been plenty more to learn. But I, I majored in philosophy at NYU. And I should mention that I attended NYU in part through financial aid, but also by taking out quite uh, hefty student loans. <laughs> uh, so coming from uh, my working class background, I didn't have financial support from my parents. I was the oldest of five. They weren't able to do it anyway. So I ended up being able to attend because I had the chance to take out a ton of student loans at ridiculous interest rates, but also because of some financial aid. <laughs> uh, and so getting to NYU was definitely a world change, <laughs> like a world shift from a working class world to um, being around people who were often much better off socioeconomically, had perhaps more academic preparation than I did going into college. Um, of course, I did, I did well, and that, <laughs> that helped me become a professor in the long run. Uh, but it was a def definitely a shock of sorts. I, I remember a guidance counselor in my high school who didn't like me very much before I got into NYU because uh, she thought I was a troublemaker and maybe I was. She told me after I got in, like, wow, we're so proud of you. I knew you could do it. Um, everyone was kind of shocked, right? Um, that, wow, NYU, what a great place to go. So it was, I mean, not unconventional exactly, but it was surprising to people from the world I grew up in. And I was surprised when I then shifted to the world of NYU, living in New York for a number of years. So, so I went to NYU as an undergrad. That's my, that's my experience as an undergraduate. Then after taking out all those student loans, I knew that I couldn't afford to pay for graduate school. And typically when you get your PhD, if you go directly to PhD, you don't have to pay anyway. Uh, so I decided I wanted to be a professor quite early on. I didn't have familiarity with philosophy before college, actually, not very much at least, but I, once I was in it, I was uh, in it for the long haul. So I figured that out early on. So I applied to a number of graduate schools. I think I applied to five. Without much guidance, I just sort of applied to a number of random places, got into a couple. And one, one that I got into was in New York City. It was um, a large institution in New York City, and I could have gotten my PhD there. And I also got into uh, the University of New Mexico, which is where I ended up going. And um, I really loved going to University of New Mexico. I, at that point, I wanted to get out of the city. I wanted to move away from Manhattan. So that was part of my consideration for deciding not to go to the large public uh, institution for my PhD. 
um, or at least the one in New York City, right? The University of New Mexico is still quite large, <laughs> uh, but given the population size of New Mexico, it's it's smaller. So I should mention part of my decision-making process, though, because I think, again, it's uh, maybe a, a narrative we don't hear too much when we, when we ask professors about their academic background or their academic trajectory. The, the school in New York was, by certain conventional rankings, a much more obvious choice. It was, quote-unquote, highly ranked. And the University of New Mexico was not ranked by the same standards uh, or wasn't included in that conventional ranking system. Um, so it looked from outside like a bit of a wild card decision, I'm sure, um, to many people, including and perhaps especially people in the field of academic philosophy. But a big part of my decision making process for going to the University of New Mexico was the institution in New York at the time offered me a stipend that was only $3,000 more than the University of New Mexico did. And being from a working class background, a fairly low income background, and having these student loans that I was going to have to pay already, I had to make an economic call for my own financial well-being in the long run and I knew that if I went to that institution in New York City, I wouldn't be able to live on that stipend amount. I think it was like $18,000 and I would have to teach two courses. And so I knew I would need a second job. I thought that would get in the way of my studies. And because of my economic background, that just wasn't the best option for me. So that's another big reason why I decided to go to the University of New Mexico, where the cost of living was much lower and I could live easily on my stipend, which was only $3,000 less. So it just it's interesting the way things turn out, but that was definitely part of why I ended up at uh, UNM. And I'm glad I, I did I'm, for a number of reasons. I met my partner at UNM, but um, I also had great mentors and close relationships with the people I work with in my PhD program. So, And it's yeah, beautiful yeah. there. It's beautiful. And it's Gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, so I uh, not only did I meet my partner, I mean, I, there are a number of things that unfolded because I ended up at the University of New Mexico. Um, I also got into environmental philosophy, the subfield of environmental philosophy, just from being in New Mexico, because in New Jersey, you can attune to the natural environment in certain moments or in certain contexts, right? But where I was from, it was mainly like concrete and highways, and again, strip malls, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So New Mexico gave me a chance to inhabit the natural environment in a different way, and to relate to it differently, to come to know it differently. And in large part, that's why I started working in environmental philosophy, environmental ethics. So a number of cool things came out of choosing UNM as my PhD granting institution. Backing up a little bit, what initially drew you to philosophy? Great question. Um, well, I always thought a lot, <laughs> very deeply, and sometimes somewhat obsessively about uh, fairly narrow topics. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of a natural fit. Um, I didn't know anything about philosophy as a field until I was in college. I did pick up essays by Jean-Paul Sartre in high school, and I thought they were really interesting really thought-provoking, um, and I enjoyed them a ton, which is why I ended up taking some philosophy courses at NYU. But I didn't know much about it until I was at college. 
I will say though, that the field was a natural fit for me and the kind of person (laughs) that I am and was. So as a kid, I was always hyper thoughtful. I was very concerned to think really clearly about things I found confusing and to to make it less confusing, right? To clarify things that were difficult for me to understand. I would ruminate a ton about the same sort of topics. Um, So I was really concerned with justice and why the world would be so unjust in certain respects. And I would try to analyze that. So I was just hyper analytic as a kid. My grandma tells me that even when I was two years old, she remembers seeing me sitting uh, in a corner <laughs> and just thinking, right? I was just sitting there with my you know, head on my chin, just thinking really deeply about something. She's like, huh, how interesting. Uh, so I think I was just a very uh, thoughtful child. I mean, I, I was always deep in thought and always um, thinking persistently and analytically about the world around me. Turns out that's a pretty helpful skill set for the field of philosophy. So philosophy allows me to to get that out, <laughs> to exercise that that part of me, that skill, or some might say talent. Although of course it's all it's not always something that you feel like is a talent. It can be frustrating to think so much, but that's how I was drawn to philosophy. It was kind of a natural fit for me. It gave me a venue to continue the kind of structured thinking that I was already doing without realizing it. What led you to Cal State San Bernardino? Because I knew that Cal State was one of the most life-changing public institutions in the country. So one of the most transformative institutions of higher education in the country. In particular, Cal State is really good at increasing social mobility or the extent to which uh, students who are economically advantaged then become economically advantaged. I noticed this, I knew this, and I found it really appealing to be at a place like that because it seemed like I'd be putting my efforts to better use as a professor. And uh, so I applied for the position and I got the position. I was really happy to get it. I was also happy to come to a place that was sunnier and warmer. Uh, more mountainous. I miss the mountains, of course, in the flatlands of Indiana. Yeah, that's generally how I got to Cal State San Bernardino. That location was appealing. It was a kind of ideological move where I was motivated by my commitments and found that I was perhaps better able to live according to certain values that I have working at a place like Cal State San Bernardino instead of a place like the small liberal arts college in Indiana, where I formerly was employed. Well, thank goodness our students are very blessed in that way. And I love Cal State. You know, CSU system is tremendous. It really it's is. incredible. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. The mission is amazing. Yes. You're an author. And this is what I want to get to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Tell us about your book, The Problem of Effective Nihilism and Nietzsche, Thinking Differently, Feeling Differently. Yes, I'm an author. As of uh, last summer, <laughs> I, have a, I have a book out. Uh, all right, sure. So a lot of people know Friedrich Nietzsche, who's a 19th century German philosopher, because of his famous proclamation that uh, God is dead, and so all must be meaningless. So he's known for 
nihilism, this idea that um, life might not be worth living or life might be meaningless. And I always found his account really interesting, Um, but there are typical ways that's been framed so far in the scholarly literature. And the main way that's been framed at least recently is as a cognitive phenomenon. Um, So nihilism for Nietzsche, many say, is a matter of adopting certain beliefs, like life is meaningless, or making certain judgments about the world in which we find ourselves, like life is not worth living. It's cognitive because it involves beliefs and judgments uh, instead of things like feelings, which are what I call affective. So I noticed this focus, this almost hyper-focus on the cognitive aspect or dimensions of nihilism in Nietzsche. And I saw there was room to theorize more about the psychological aspects of nihilism in Nietzsche. And I was spurred onto this by a review of Bernard Redenster's book, The Affirmation of Life by Ken James, who's at the University of Birkbeck, London. He says in this review, well, Bernard Redenster's account seems to be overly cognitive. And for Nietzsche, what's really important are the feelings that you feel when you're going through nihilism. That's really key for Nietzsche. And if you don't explain the psychology of nihilism, the feelings that go along with meaninglessness, then you kind of miss what he's trying to get at. You kind of miss the phenomenon of nihilism altogether. And so I I took that idea and ran with it and went through Nietzsche's works to try to start to flesh out an account of nihilism as a psychological phenomenon involving certain feelings that we have instead of certain beliefs or judgments that we have. And I was especially interested to describe what the psychological state of the person who is a nihilist looks like for Nietzsche. And in this book, I came to describe the state as the experience of certain recurring affects or feelings or emotions. We can use those interchangeably for now. They're slightly different, but they're they're very closely related. So certain affects or emotions or feelings that one experiences that recur and that function ultimately to demotivate one to obstruct or block one's way of orienting oneself towards certain goals or in philosophy what we call their ends and so how one's feelings can make one become detached from the world to an extent Um, how certain recurring feelings that one can have can make one feel like the world is meaningless can make one feel like life is not worth living Right, and just trying to look into Nietzsche and see how he describes um, what exactly that might look like. So that's the motivation behind the project. My inspiration was to really explain the emotional dimensions, the experience of meaninglessness that Nietzsche is so keen to describe. And I've always been pretty interested. Like I said before, uh, I was almost a psychology major. So I've always been pretty interested in the psychological aspects of our beliefs and judgments and things like that. And I've always been especially interested in emotions and how they function and what they can do to us. 
So this is my account of affective nihilism is really a, a pretty specific account of what emotions can do to us. And it's when emotions uh, stop us from engaging in the world like we used to. There's people that just are born and they they feel that way. Yeah. I've known people like that. Yeah, totally. You're making philosophy (laughs) fun. It sounds like the fun philosophy club. Thank you for your time, Caitlin Creasy, assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy for our Cal podcast series. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks again for having me. We hope you have enjoyed today's CSUSB Cal podcast. Look for other episodes from the College of Arts and Letters on the campus of California State University, San Bernardino. 